Welcome to the Diane Podcast. Diane, or Diversity and Inclusion in Asian Network, is the leading network of companies and professionals committed to advancing diversity and inclusion in their organizations in Asia. Leveraging a decade of expertise and thought leadership, we hope this podcast inspires, educates, and motivates passionate individuals like yourself. My name is Tina Arcilia, Senior Manager at Community Business, and I manage the Diane Network. With us today is Connie Wong, Managing Director of CSW Associates, Inc., the leading global consulting firm with teams based in over 25 countries focused on diversity and inclusion for today's workforce. Connie, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. It's really an honor. And I'd like to thank Community Business and the Diane Network for asking me to be a part of this podcast. Of course. By way of introduction, tell us a little bit about yourself and your relationship with Community Business and Diane and your work in Asia. So I... I started uh, working in Asia in 2000 uh, because of uh, a push, if you will, from Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan Chase, two of our clients at the time who really asked us to globalize the work that we were doing uh, in the United States and to begin to set up teams throughout Asia. And if I look back over the years and think about the role that community business has played within the region, to me, uh, coming from the West and working in the region frequently, it really was the think tank where everyone would go to for resources. But what I love about the growth of community business, you really have gone from being a think tank to actually defining the narrative for what diversity and inclusion really means for the whole of Asia. And I think the Diane Network was a very important component of that because it allowed for you to establish um, some very prominent companies where two things were happening consistently. One, you were showcasing leadership on a consistent basis and also showcasing what best practice looks like. And I, I believe that that created tremendous momentum in the region. Thank you for your kind words, Connie. We've certainly tried to shape that narrative in the region. And we at Diane have seen this evolution, but I'm curious to know how you've seen the messaging around diversity and inclusion evolve over the past years that you've worked across Asia. If I look back to 2000 and the evolution of some of the messaging, I feel that in 2000 the message was um, the West needs to learn a lot more about Asia or a lot more about the East. And at the same time, I think Asia was starting to flex its muscle a little bit in saying we're not necessarily going to define diversity and inclusion by simply a Western standard. We're going to look at its true definition and what it means for us locally as well as globally. So some of the priorities were very different than what you would um, have noticed in some of the initiatives and programming in the West. So um, corporate responsibility was key. 
um, contribution to the community, discussion about cross-cultural issues, gender was front and center, work-life balance was a key issue. So those were kind of the beginning themes uh, in the early, you know, 2000, 2001, 2002, but there, to me there's been a tremendous evolution in how uh, the region looks at diversity and inclusion, and also I think there are some really unique opportunities for the region uh, in the future. Mm, there certainly are a lot of opportunities as we see the understanding and the scope of DNI work grow over time, and as each market develops a greater understanding of what inclusion means in that local context. Your training techniques are incredibly unique and impactful. And what we hear from companies who have engaged you is that these sessions really help to unlock a different type of conversation and awareness about diversity and inclusion. Could you share your approach and maybe describe what one might expect from an interactive theater experience? Yeah, so thank you for that question. We actually, uh, in the early days, called our interactive theater, which is our the core element of our programming, just that. But it's evolved into what we call a live case study, which I think is more representative of not only the research and the design that we put into it, but actually the implementation. Um, I think our program is is courageous in its approach, and I think it's practical in its application. And the reason I think it's courageous is because we allow the participants to help shape the dialogue and the learning that takes place in our programs. And the practical aspect is that depending on what your level of awareness is, you can take some best practice skills from any part of our program and apply it almost immediately. Where where I see a lot of our clients could put more effort into is how they actually measure the success of not only our initiatives, but other initiatives that are in their diversity and inclusion curriculums. And, and that's not unique to Asia. That's something that I think all companies need to put a greater emphasis on. And our unique focus is simply that we think business leaders, the top business leaders in the world, many of which are in Asia, um, play a really significant role and, and impact people's lives and impact the communities that they operate in. So our case study experience is lively, it's dynamic, it's organic, uh, although there are some core principles, obviously, that we hold to. Um, we do our research to get the local issues correct. We mirror that with the key themes that our clients feel are important to the culture change that they're trying to uh, institute. And um, then we create, I think, a very dynamic experience for their leadership teams and their employees. And, and it's also scalable. We're, we're very fortunate that we can work with small groups, large groups, and we're able to combine that local sensibility, but also some of the global themes that consistently run through many of our um, client organizations. Ultimately, I think people leave the experience 
with our live case study, um, with having had an opportunity to build some trust, to feel that they have an opportunity to collaborate with employees and to also share some of their own experiences. And, and the whole experience, I think, showcases how when we come together with respect for one another and open up our minds, we can really learn a lot from each other. Thanks, Connie. Now, you mentioned the early days of your work. When you started your work in Asia over a decade ago, I don't think the term unconscious bias was as popular then as it is now but it seems to be what you're exploring through these interactions. Now, hearing about what you now call live case studies, I'm interested to hear how the understanding of unconscious bias and approaches to unconscious bias training has evolved over the years, in particular around the cultural differences that we encounter in Asia. So it's unconscious bias um, has been so fantastic to work with because um, and I'm so pleased that we made the decision early on because there are so many thought leaders out there that we would not attach ourselves to one theory, but that we would work with any of the theories that our clients felt worked best within their organizations. And unconscious bias was a real um kind of breaking point, I think, in opening up the discussions in many of the DNI initiatives because it's very relatable. Um, if you look at previous diversity and inclusion discussions, sometimes people would take very hard positions on whether they agreed or disagreed with any position or viewpoint that you had on diversity. But with unconscious bias, it actually pulls you out of the corner of a hard position and it allows you to be more curious um, and be more practical in how you think you might apply it to your own life, both personally and professionally, because it, it, it level sets the discussion in the room. Everyone has unconscious bias, so it gets everyone out of the corner of are we being blamed for something that's gone wrong into the corner of curiosity about the human condition, and when we're working on a global platform, how does this impact you know, our teams, our individuals, and our lives? So ultimately, I think when you have something that is that relatable across the board, and it, it helps people to be curious and open their minds, that's what I think leads to sustainable change. One of the things I wanted to mention um, earlier was that in the early days of our work, you know, pre-2000, we were more domestically focused in the U.S. on sexual harassment. And um, interestingly enough, with the hashtag MeToo and hashtag Time's Up effort, that's come full circle. And it's back on the top of everybody's list. And we decided this year to advise our clients that, first of all, to make sure that everyone in their respective countries are educated appropriately on the legal requirements that they have to comply with. But we really have encouraged our clients to um, set a much higher bar because if you allow for an environment where there 
um, is are elements of sexual harassment or power harassment. In essence, it's like a cancer and it grows and it will absolutely bring to a screeching halt any effort you have on diversity and inclusion uh, and respect. So where we really want to be is at the stage where our clients are setting a much higher bar around respect and inclusion and where they really empower their change agents within both um, members of the DNI teams as well as change agents that exist uh, right on their frontline teams. And when you look at that combined effort, I think you really start to look at inclusive environments and that will always mitigate your risk to sexual and power harassment. I agree. We definitely need to set a higher bar, especially in conversations around topics like hashtag me too. We can't just give a session around, hey, here's how not to get sued for harassing people. The incidents of exclusion or even outright harassment are indicative of deeper issues, as you say, and treating the symptoms isn't enough. It's about building a truly inclusive culture. I love how you talk about agents of change, these key influencers within organizations who may or may not be the most senior person in the room. As we hopefully build leadership capacity regardless of where individuals are in the organization, what do you see coming down the line in terms of approaches to leadership development? What skills do we need to develop as leaders in this new context? That's a great question. Uh, there, there, I have several observations. I mean, if I look at current state, one of the things that we've noticed is that um, in some countries and cultures, you're going um, a little bit uh, shifting with local talent to becoming a more homogeneous culture. Uh, and what happens in those circumstances is that people will slip into a comfort zone. So we like to encourage our clients to create positive disruption. Uh, and what I mean by that is um, anything you can do with assignments, with experiences, with mentoring, with exposure to something that is different from one's comfort zone in their own culture, which allows them to move out of the status quo so that they can open up their minds and shift their motivation a little bit about why they should continue to pay attention to being diverse and inclusive. It's very easy to stay in your comfort zone, but your comfort zone is your danger zone because um, you'll start to miss some of the nuances uh, that support a truly inclusive environment and one that's organic and continues to innovate. And what I mean by that is some of the issues that let's say companies in Hong Kong, Singapore, Tokyo, Beijing, you know, uh, Vietnam, Philippines, some of the issues they've been dealing with previously may not be the ones they're going to deal with in the next decade. So all of us have to stay very, um, very much in the mode of innovation and being very receptive to how uh, diversity and inclusion will shift 
with the guidance of unconscious bias and being open-minded. So I think the going from a diverse environment to a homogeneous environment is one of the biggest challenges and making sure that you've got positive disruption so people don't um, shift into a comfort zone mode and therefore shut down on their thinking and their innovation. Secondly, um, I think we have to instill with our leaders and their teams um, the courage to explore and have some of the tougher conversations about the cultural differences that exist within Asia. And this is very difficult because it will push people out of their comfort zone and it if they're going to have a real honest conversation about some of those differences, I think it will be very delicate territory for people, but those conversations are important and there's so much that can be learned and not only within the region, but the region should be positioning itself to teach the rest of the world about some of those differences. The other thing I've noticed trend-wise is um, teams leaving Asia and going into homogeneous cultures, cultures, I'll use um, the growth in Warsaw, Poland as an example, uh, where you might have teams from South Asia or East Asia who are now all, all of a sudden find themselves working with a majority Polish team. And they may not know very much about the Polish, and the Polish may not know a whole lot about their, their cultural differences as well. So I wonder how are we preparing the teams on both ends of that spectrum? So I, I, I think these are new conversations that are happening with some of our clients as the work mobility strategies change. Mm, preparing teams and individuals to have difficult but still respectful conversations is key. I like how you say your comfort zone is your danger zone. And as we've highlighted in this conversation, this is an age of innovation and disruption. We all need to be comfortable with discomfort. As we close, what are your final observations and key advice for our listeners today? First of all, I think virtual leadership for all of our global teams continues to be a challenge. I don't think we fully understand the impact of what it means to be on a team and have your manager or leader in another country and where you may have only limited time and it may not be in-person time. Secondly, I think we have to be more courageous in confronting history and where our countries and cultures have been in conflict, global business leaders are uniquely positioned to create a bridge of understanding that leads to trust, uh, that leads to a solid platform of innovation and fantastic teams. I also think that we need to, to hold ourselves both externally as external advisors and internally to being a lot more intentional on measuring the results of some of the fantastic initiatives that we support. 
I find in many of our client organizations, there are amazing things happening globally, and half the employees don't even know about it, let alone know what the the actual measurement is where it's actually achieved uh, some fantastic success. There are also some taboo issues that I think the more we talk about it, the more comfortable we become with it, and we just become smarter about it. Um, looking at white privilege within uh, the context of Asia and looking at white and Western privilege within the context of other parts of the world. And I, I hope, uh, very much hope, with all of this work that we've put into DNI over so many years now, that we're encouraging our leaders to take a strong stand on a platform of values and integrity because I do not believe that any organization can create sustainable diversity and inclusion without values and integrity. And um, I believe the rest of the world has so much to learn from Asia. I think that the one thing I would love to see more of is Asia broadcasting to the rest of the world and helping people make the shift from looking at culture as a deficit uh, to culture as an asset. And, and what assets can we take from Asian cultures that would empower all of us in different parts of the world and hopefully Asia doing the same, taking the same assets from other cultures. And finally, the geopolitical environment and the rise of nationalism and hate speech around the world is something that I think our global leaders and our leaders in Asia uh, need to pay very close attention to and need to take a stand on and lead the way because their companies and our teams um, impact the communities that we operate in. And of course, that's why most of us do the work that we do, because we genuinely believe that. Well, with that challenge to Asia and to leaders, I think we'll have to pause our conversation here and continue hopefully sometime in the near future. Connie, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you again. It's been an honor, and I look forward to speaking again. To everyone listening in, join me again next time as I speak with renowned author and educator and the co-founder of the White Ribbon Campaign, Michael Kaufman. We're going to discuss how to engage men in promoting gender equality.